to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I want you to imagine with me, as you're turning to Galatians chapter 4, I want you to imagine with me that you are a slave. Imagine yourself a slave to a very hard taskmaster. There's, there's absolutely no possible way to accomplish the work that he demands of you. And the work you do accomplish, the work you are able to somewhat fulfill, never ever measures up to the standard that he has for you. You always fall short of his expectations. There's no possible way he's ever going to allow you to rest. You slaves don't get vacations. There's no possible way he's ever going to set you free. One day, the son of a neighboring taskmaster comes to visit. You've heard of this man that he is kind, he's, he's full of mercy, he's full of grace, he's gentle, he's, he's loving to his slaves and and. Once he purchases his slaves, he has a tendency to set them free. He not only sets them free, but he brings them into his family and he makes them heirs of the estate. He even sometimes will dress himself and serve them. He's even been known at times to wash their feet. All of that's a dream for you, though, because you are trapped. You are miserable. You are weighed down by all of the tasks that you have to accomplish today with no hope of accomplishing any of them fully and no hope of satisfying the demands of your hard taskmaster. You notice a transaction take place, and your master walks away, and this son comes, and he knocks on your door. He takes you by the hand to take you with Him. To set you free. To make you His brother. To make you a fellow heir of His Father's estate. In a moment, in the the twinkling of an eye, everything has changed for you. Can you. Can you imagine a greater Christmas gift for a slave to such a hard taskmaster, could you imagine a greater Christmas gift? And really, this is what Christmas is all about. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not about just about a little baby being born in a manger in Bethlehem and the romanticism of the Christmas lights and the Christmas songs and the feeling we get deep down inside this time of year. All that's wonderful. All of that is great. But that is not really what Christmas is all about. What Christmas is really all about is the son of a good master coming to redeem us from slavery to a hard task master and to set us free like we just sang about by his grace. And we see it very clearly in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Listen to what the Bible says, and I hope you have your Bible with you this morning because we're going to be looking at several scriptures together. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now I say, 
As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have all, at one time or another, been enslaved to a hard taskmaster. That's what we learn in verses 1 through 3. We have all been enslaved to a hard master. It says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. You see, all of us at one time or another, either either this morning or sometime in the recent past or the distant past, have all found ourselves enslaved to a hard master. We've been held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, Paul says. You see, before Christ, we were all under. We were all under a guardian. We were all under a manager, if you were to turn back a chapter in Galatians to Galatians chapter 3, you would read in verses 23 and 24, now before faith came, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were held captive under the law, enslaved under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law, listen to how Paul describes it all, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That Greek word for guardian there pictures a slave appointed to serve as a child's protector. You see, back in this day, in this age, when children were growing up from age 6 until late adolescence, the child was under constant care and constant supervision. This might be a good thing for many of us to apply today, right? There was a reason for that. These, these children from at roughly age 6 to late adolescence were under the constant watchful eye and the constant care and supervision of a guardian. And this slave who was this guardian was, was part babysitter and part chaperone. Ancient drawings usually depict this individual holding a rod. He provided protection. He provided punishment. Wouldn't your parents love that? If you just had somebody else, it's like every time your kid needed it, just punish them. No energy expended on your part. This guardian was, was there to constantly protect, to punish, to serve as a tutor, to help them in their learning. And Paul uses that word to describe the law in our lives before Christ. It's like a tutor to 
to prime our pump, to help us learn what the Bible is really about. And the Bible is really not about do's and don'ts. It's about who's. Not do's, but who's. Jesus. This book is about Jesus. From Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21, this book is about Jesus. Now, the law is there to tutor us so that we can then see the fulfillment of those laws who is Jesus. The law is there to, to protect us, to hedge us in from total rebellion against God. Even as sinners to hedge us in. The law is there to discipline us. The law is there like that guardian with that rod depicted in those pictures to drive us not away from Christ, but to Christ. Before Christ, we were enslaved to what Paul calls the elementary principles. Now, what are these elementary principles? Well, if you look in verses 9 and 10 of Galatians chapter 4, we find out One definition of these elementary principles. Galatians 4, 9 and 10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless... Strong terms. Weak and worthless. Elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. What are these things, Paul? Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear you, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. We get this little hint here of what Paul's saying. Paul is saying to the Galatians, you were under a very hard taskmaster. Under a taskmaster of elementary principles, you, by faith, have been brought out from under those elementary principles. And now, for some odd reason, you want to go back and enslave yourself again to those weak and worthless principles. He addresses this again in Colossians chapter 2. If you'll turn over to Colossians chapter 2. I know this is a lengthy passage of Scripture. But I want you to see how the Bible just is is filled with this theme that we're seeing this morning of Jesus, the Son of a good master, coming to redeem us from a hard taskmaster and give us freedom and make us part of His family. In Colossians chapter 2, we get more insight into these elementary principles. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8, listen to what the Bible says. See to it. That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to who? Christ. you got two options here. you got the elementary principles of the world, and you have Christ. First, Christ, for in Him, verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Paul's right there. We have a picture of Christ. We've got the elementary principles of the world, and we have Christ. Christ who came and and revealed to us everything we need to know about God the Father in bodily form. Christ who, who came and not only revealed to us who God is in bodily form, but He also came and He circumcised us, not in the flesh, but spiritually speaking. He cut off the old man. We were buried with Him in baptism and we died to our old self. We were raised to walk in newness of life. And He took our sin and He nailed it to the cross and He dealt with it on the cross. He rose from the grave disarming all of our enemies. He triumphed over them. This is good. Flip side, verse 16, the elementary principles begin to show up. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You know what the laws are? The Sabbath laws? The dietary laws? The feasts? They're all weak and they're all worthless if they don't point us to Jesus. They're all weak and worthless if they do not point us to Jesus. We can keep them all with as much, with as much energy and as much consistency as we can muster, and they're absolutely worthless if they don't point us to Jesus Christ. They're elementary. He goes on, verse 18, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure. The appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know what Paul just told us? The Holy Spirit just told us through the Apostle Paul. You can keep all the do's, and you can avoid all the don'ts, and you can dress the part, And you can celebrate the feast. You can keep the Sabbath day holy. You can dot all of your I's. You can cross all of your T's. And you know what it gets you? Zilch, nada, nothing. It's weak 
It's worthless. It's elementary. It makes you look good. It makes you look holy. It makes you look impressive. It makes you look higher than those around you. But the reality is it is of zero value, no value against fleshly indulgence. Your heart is still wicked. That's why you see people. This is why you see people falling like dominoes who everybody around them thinks is perfectly holy and wonderful, and how could they ever, ever, ever let anyone down? They're the most wonderful preacher in the world. They're the most wonderful leader in the world. Look at all the people that flock to them. Look at how big their churches are. Look at how successful they are. Look at how, quote-unquote, fruitful they are. They're putting on the show. They're doing the do's. They're avoiding the don'ts. They're dotting their I's. They're crossing their T's. they got everybody around them full, but their hearts are wretched inside, and it eventually comes out. And everybody around them go, I can't believe that. No value against fleshly indulgence. You know what is of value against fleshly indulgence? Christ. Jesus Christ. You can be enslaved to these elementary principles and try to fight the flesh with your do's and your don'ts and try to get out from under this heavy, hard taskmaster of the law condemning you constantly, or you can run to the Son who will redeem you and set you free and make you His fellow heir of the kingdom. Elementary principles. Turn over one more time to Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, I want you to see what Paul is talking about. Now we've got Hebrews, whoever wrote that. It's going to be one of my first questions in eternity. Who wrote Hebrews? Mystery of mysteries, but we know who wrote it. The Holy Spirit of God penned this through the person of His choosing. In Hebrews chapter 10, we see... Again, a picture of these elementary principles. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. You notice this. Now, there are people who want to spend their life trying to dot the I's and cross the T's of the laws. And the laws are are only a shadow of the good things to come. And not the very form of things. So the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin? But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. You hear that? He takes away the first 
in order to establish the second. He takes away the first. What's the first? They're continually sacrificing. And, and, and so many Christians get all, all giddy inside because of the, the rumors that float around on social media that they're getting ready to break ground on the temple. They found a red heifer. They found the utensils. The priests are dressing up. I'm so excited that, that Israel's about to have a temple and offer sacrifices again. This must mean something. No, it means nothing. It means nothing. That's why in A.D. 70, Rome destroyed, flattened the temple because a final, finished, perfect sacrifice had already been offered. Do you think, do you think God is up there going, oh, I just really want them to start sacrificing those sheep again because they're good little Jews. Absolutely not. He sent a lamb without spot or blemish to be, to be sacrificed for the sins of mankind. Do you think he wants them sacrificing a red heifer? It won't be a joy to God for them to rebuild a temple and sacrifice. It'll be a spit in his face. We ought not to get giddy inside. We ought to be grieved inside that it's even thought of when Jesus, there's nothing better than Jesus. He came, the Bible says, to take away the first in order to establish the second. By this will he have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is finished, is what Jesus said, if I'm not mistaken. Every priest, verse 11, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, set down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Listen carefully. The elementary principles of the world have to do with what we see in the Old Testament. All those do's, all those don'ts, all those feasts, all those days, all those sacrifices, all those things that make people look holy on the outside but can really do nothing for us on the inside. And for some reason, we people who have heard the gospel and know the gospel have a tendency, have a tendency to want to run back to the do's and the don'ts. That is why, that is why when we have been a really good boy or a really good girl this week, we come into church feeling good. I mean, God is going to be, I, I'm, I'm so happy to be at church this week. I, I haven't cussed, I haven't, I haven't smoked, I haven't drank, I haven't, I haven't fooled around, I haven't kicked the dog. I mean, I've been so perfect. I've been so good all week and I can come to church and I can feel good about myself. But if I blow it on Saturday night or on Sunday morning with the kids on the way to church, we come in with our heads hung down real low because, you know, like Adam and Eve, we want to hide in the bushes in the garden. Jesus came to drive us out of the bushes, reveal our nakedness, clothe us once and for all for good. Do you see the difference? If you come in with your head hung low because you busted it this morning, or you come in with your head held high because you're holier than thou around you, you are missing the point and you're running back to elementary principles of the world. On the best day of the best week, of the best month, of the best year of your whole life, you are not fit to stand before a holy God. And on the worst day of the worst week of the worst month of the worst year of your whole life, you can be perfectly righteous in His eyes, not because of you, but because of Christ. And as long as we miss that, we miss the whole Bible. And I propose to you that's one of the reasons that church in the West is drying up on the vine. Because we're all about do's and we're all about don'ts and we're all about looking the part and fooling everybody around us instead of running to Jesus Christ 
alone. We, we are all or have all been enslaved to a very hard taskmaster. And that taskmaster is the law, that guardian that God has placed over us. The good news is we have been redeemed. We've been redeemed by a good master. I will sing of my Redeemer like we just sang of. We sing that song, you set me free, you set me free, my ransoms. And then, and then we go right back to what we were supposedly set free from. We've been redeemed by a good master. Go back to Galatians 4. We have been redeemed by a good master. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came. Here's the Christmas story. This is the Christmas story. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. So that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Listen. We can be heirs because we have been redeemed from slavery to the law, slavery to the elementary principles of the world, by Jesus Christ, who God sent forth to be born of a woman in a manger in Bethlehem. To be born under the law in Israel as a Jew. So that he could redeem those who also were born under the law. So that he could live the perfect, law-abiding, sinless, spotless, holy life that God requires and demands of all of us. So that he could do that in our place and so that he could go to the cross and pay for our sins in full as the spotless, sinless, perfect Lamb of God, so that we can be redeemed from underneath the law and so that we can be adopted into His family as sons and as daughters. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Again, this, this is the Christmas story. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 6. At least I'm keeping you all in Paul's letters right there together. You know, I'm not making you run all over, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, although he existed. I know I've said this before. Pay attention. If you missed it before, you need to understand this, kids and adults. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice that Jesus did not come into existence in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He has existed for all eternity. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to. He existed in the form of God, equal with God, not a lesser God, not second in command. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God the Father is spirit, and He does not have a body like a man. But if He were to pass in front of a mirror and cast a reflection, you would see Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. You want to know what God looks like? Look to Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Read the Gospels and find out what Jesus is like. 
When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And look in verse 7. But He emptied Himself. He did, not, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And he doesn't put a period there. He puts a comma and he goes on and says, even death on a cross. It's one thing for God in the flesh to die, to be obedient to the point of death, stoning. But it's a totally other thing for God in the flesh to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. He who dies on a tree is cursed, the Bible says. There's an article written by uh, a friend of mine's son called Jesus Died a Hero. And I pulled some excerpts from that I want to read to you to help you understand that redeeming us from our bondage was no cakewalk. Here's what Brian Elliff wrote in that article, parts of that article. There's a very old bit of graffiti scrawled onto a plaster wall in Rome. It's a crude sketch of a naked man hanging on a stick figure cross. The man has the head of a donkey. To the left stands another man who looks up at the crucifixion with his hand raised. In case we misinterpret the scene, the graffiti, quote-unquote, artist has been kind enough to etch in a caption in Greek. It reads, Alexamenos worships his God. Apparently, the man with the donkey head is Jesus. And Alexamenos is a Christian. This third century work of quote-unquote art is meant to be a mockery. In the Roman world, crucifixion was the kind of death reserved for slaves and criminals. It was intentionally brutal and degrading. The public exposure, cruelty, nakedness, and lack of burial all were an announcement this is a worthless person. So it's no wonder that the message of the cross was stupidity to the Romans. What amazed Paul is not just that Jesus died, but that it was even death on a cross. That's because it was a humiliating death. It wasn't heroic or inspiring to them. The kind of act that people would talk about with respect or make it into movies with emotional soundtracks. No. Jesus chose to be associated with something uncomfortable, even revolting and shameful. He knew that people would scoff at it and think it was stupid. He even knew that one day he would be depicted naked with the head of a donkey. And to think, he gave up his status as God for that. He did not count equality with God the Father, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And verse 9 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know you've all heard that verse, but maybe you don't know where that verse is pulled from. Isaiah forty-five twenty-three says this, I have sworn by myself 
the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. (laughs) Do you realize what good news that is? For missionaries like we just prayed for. That that as we work to bring the gospel of the kingdom to the nation, that knees from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe will freely, and they will gladly bow. People from every nation, from every tongue, and from every tribe will freely and gladly confess allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says that after these things, I looked and behold a multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess eventually and until then people from every nation, tongue, and tribe will willingly and joyfully bow the knee and confess. And we all, we are all at some point under the law, enslaved to a hard Master, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But we have been redeemed by a good master. And we can be redeemed by a good master this morning if we will just bow the knee and pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ. Lastly, we're adopted as sons by the master. Back in Galatians 4, verse number 6. Go back to Galatians 4, look at verses number 6 and 7. Because you are sons. Because you are sons. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Listen, it would be... It would be a grace of God if He took we who are dead in our transgressions and dead in our sin and regenerated us and gave us spiritual life so that we could see good, so that we could see evil, so that we could see salvation, so that we could see lostness, so that we could see the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell and be like the angels who are spiritually alive. That would be a grace of God. But He went beyond just regenerating us and He redeemed us. You see, He made us alive so that we can see the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. And then He redeemed us from slavery to the elementary principles of the world and brought us into His kingdom so that we can live with Him for eternity as His servants, as His bond slaves. And if He had stopped there, He'd have been gracious. But listen to what He did. He, he not only regenerated us and gave us spiritual life, He not only redeemed us, And gave us holiness and righteousness before Him. But He adopted us. So that now not only are we spiritually alive and and fit to be His servants. But He has adopted us and He's made us His children. And heirs of His estate. So as heirs we inherit the kingdom of God. Not by law, not by works, but by faith. You see, you're in one of two positions this morning. You can be in the position of a slave, a slave to a hard taskmaster. There's no way that you're going to measure up. You're always coming short of the standard that he has for you. You always fall short of his expectations. 
There's no possible way he's ever going to set you free. You can leave this room this morning belonging to Mr. Law. Or you can be in the position of an heir to a new master who cares for you, who loves you, who adopts you into his family. You can leave here this morning belonging to Mr. Grace. Which, which of those two positions is most appealing? How can you be made an heir only by grace through faith in the redeeming work of Christ on the cross? I want us to just look at one more passage of Scripture as we close. If you look down in Galatians 4, look down to verses 21 to 31, and listen to how Paul paints this picture of your two options. He says, you can be an Ishmael or you can be an Isaac. You can be a Hagar or you can be, belong to Sarah. You can be a child of the flesh or a child of the promise. It's only two options. Galatians 4 and verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, you who feel really good about yourself when you do good, you who feel really bad about yourself when you do bad, you who come in with your, held, held, your head held high when, you've, when you're striking all eight, on all eight cylinders on Sunday morning you with your heads hung down low when you've got a spark plug, spiritual spark plug misfiring. You want to live by the do's and the don'ts and dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written... It is written in the law that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Nothing miraculous in the birth of Ishmael with Hagar. It was all according to the flesh, normal birth. No surprises. And the son by the free woman through promise. Now we got a surprise. We got a hundred-year-old man and a hundred-year-old woman that had a baby. That's a surprise, right? Sharing a nursing home bed and wife looks over to the husband and says, I got some news. Surprise, right? This is, this is not normal. This is not according to the flesh. This is, this is according to the promise. A miracle has occurred. Those are our two options. We've got the son according to the flesh, born to the bondwoman, Hagar. We've got the son according to the promise, born to the free woman, Sarah. Verse 24, this is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. This one represents those who are held captive under the elementary principles of the world, who are listening to the laws that came from God's own mouth on Mount Sinai that he used as a guardian to tutor and to protect and to discipline his people until the thing that they foreshadowed came into existence. Jesus, Hagar, is Mount Sinai, verse 25, in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem where she's in slavery with her children. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. Listen, we need to be a lot more concerned with the Jerusalem above than we are with the Jerusalem here. The Jerusalem here is a picture of slavery. Jerusalem above is a picture of freedom in Christ. The Jerusalem above in verse 26 is free. She's our mother. 
For it is written, Rejoice, barren womb who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Galatians who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, who have repented of their sin and their own efforts at self-righteousness, and they have been brought into freedom by Christ. And he's saying, listen, you, you are the Isaac, the children of promise. Verse 29, but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. That should scare us. That should scare us if we want to go back to the law. Listen, the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. If you want to hang on to your do's and don'ts and your self-righteousness and your good works and your holier-than-thou attitude, if you want to keep hanging on to what you're doing, you can't mix and mingle that with the gospel. There's not room for the bondwoman and the free woman. There's not room for Ishmael and Isaac. There's not room for the flesh and the promise. You have to reject all of your efforts to measure up. You have to reject all of your efforts to dot the I's and cross the T's and to be good enough and to be acceptable in your own strength. And you've got to reject that and you've got to look to Jesus Christ alone who came and did everything that needs to be done to get you to heaven. He came and did everything necessary to get you to heaven. He lived the perfect life that God requires of you. And he went to the cross and died the brutal death that your sin deserves and that my sin deserves. It is done, complete, finished. All we need to do is look to Christ. Run from Ishmael. Run from Hagar. Run from Mount Sinai. Run from the works of the flesh. Run from our self-righteousness. And cling to Christ because the way we are going to get into the kingdom of God is through faith and the promise not through keeping the laws. Have you, this morning, been brought from slavery to sonship? I'm going to tell you, you can walk down an aisle, you can pray a prayer, you can join the church, you can even get in leadership in the church and never, ever be brought out from under slavery and be given freedom in Christ. You can come and you can fool everybody around you because it gives you the image of righteousness, but it really has no, no ability to put to death the flesh. So you can fly in under the radar. And maybe it's just you and Jesus this morning that know that you are enslaved to works, to legalism, to self-righteousness. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know the greatest Christmas gift you can experience this morning is not a diamond ring, not a new car, not even being shed of COVID. The greatest Christmas gift you can experience this morning is freedom from your hard taskmaster. Redemption by a loving, gracious, and merciful taskmaster who will set you free, who will serve you, who will bring you into his family and make you an heir. Are you enslaved this morning? Listen, turn away from your sin Turn away from your sin of self-righteousness. Yes, your self-righteousness, your good works, 
are sin. They're filthy rags in the eyes of God. Turn away from your self-righteousness, your religiosity, and turn to God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and sing, He set me free. And Merry Christmas. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your law. We thank you for your law that served as our guardian, that served as our tutor, that served as our guide for our conscience, that like that, like that guardian with the rod drives us, burdens us, weighs us down until we see Jesus. I pray now. There may be somebody in this room who's been a member of this church for 150 years. Got everybody around them fooled. But are weighed down with their guilt, with their shame, with their inability to be good enough. They're enslaved to those elementary principles of the world. I pray that you would help them just to say, forget it. And to repent. And to run and find their worth and their hope and their future in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for living a perfect, sinless, spotless life in our place. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay for our sin in full. Thank you that we can be redeemed from a hard taskmaster and set free by the grace of Jesus. Grant repentance, grant faith, transformation, and assurance of salvation this morning as we celebrate you who at the fullness of time came to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.